Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Today, we're speaking with Mariam Issa, a Somalian refugee, founder of Resilient Aspiring Women, author, Asylum Seekers Resource Centre board member, community builder, public speaker, to name just a few of her talents. Welcome, Mariam. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here. Well, it's great to see you. You and Igniting Change go way back. How did it all begin, this special friendship? Yes, we do. And I think I have my son to thank that for. My son, Abdul, was part of an organization that Igniting Change was supporting. It was called the Young Basketballers. Yes, it was a a program helping young Supporting young refugees, yeah. And so Abdul was part of that. He actually started playing there and then later on became part of the team. And he was working there. So he met Jane that way. And then they started talking. And as you know, Jane, (laughs) with her curiosity and talking to the... (laughs) (laughs) She said, tell me about your mum. Yes. So, (laughs) yeah. And he started just bubbling about his mum and what she does. And so Jane and I got to meet that way. When I met Jane, actually, I was in the process of creating uh, the raw garden. But it was just an idea at the time. So we'll go back to arriving in Australia from Somalia. Yep. At that stage you had, well, we'll go even further back and talk about what a difficult journey that was. Well, yeah, before we came to Australia, we were, about, we were displaced for eight years and looking for ways to find a space where we could, you know, raise our children. We had four children and yeah, so we tried England to, as, as refugees, but we were rejected. We got a rejection. And then my brother-in-law came to Australia. And then my husband's uh, family, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law came as well. So we tried again to come to Australia, but we got a rejection again. And so I almost like sort of gave up and thought, well, this isn't going to happen, so I might as well, you know, stay here in Kenya. And in Kenya, we were sort of uh, not in a refugee camp, but my husband was literally in hiding because he didn't have uh, the the right papers, and if he was found, then he could go to prison. And so... I had the Kenyan passport. I was a Kenya. Uh, I was a Somali Kenyan, so but I couldn't really um, sponsor him. So it was not an easy journey. Very and stressful. Very for you. stressful. Really stressful. And how old were your children at this stage? Uh, my children. My oldest was about was nine years of age, and the youngest was three years old. So you came to Australia after a pretty. Yeah. Rocky journey. Harrowing ta- time. Yes, we came to Australia in, 19, in November of 1998. And so at this point, I, was have, I came with my four children, but I was also pregnant with my fifth child. I was about six months pregnant. 
So it wasn't an not easy ideal. journey. Not ideal at all. And and we were actually hiding it. We were hiding the pregnancy because we wouldn't have been given the visa had they known that I was pregnant. So lots of flowing dresses. So lots of flowing dresses. And once we came here, everything was fine. Actually, to really put things in context, I think that we were one of the very luckiest refugees. Because in all honesty, if you look at the state of refugees and asylum seekers in Australia today, uh, none of what, you know, had, what we went through are they going through. It's really a hard time for them. Well, it's much harder. and Much, much harder. For us, we were processed offshore. Uh, we came through the reunion visa, which means that, you know, we had family here. So our journey wasn't as complicated. So I'm always appreciative of that fact and very, very uh, grateful for it. But it was still an experience that has shaped the way that you are now and all the work that you're doing now in terms of being a person who goes from a place where, well, at least in Somalia before Kenya, you had a life and a family and a way of living and you came to Melbourne and more specifically to Brighton, Brighton. which was not necessarily the suburb that your relatives were in, I gather. (laughs) No, my relatives were in Bentley and I think that's how actually we ended up in Brighton because we were supposed to be close to our families. So for anybody who's not familiar with Melbourne's suburbs, Brighton is always considered to be a very affluent suburb and pretty conservative and you were probably the only refugees at that time living in Brighton, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. But and I think we were the we were almost like the only Africans um, that Brighteners might have interacted with yes. or have come across. And I remember that our next door neighbor, uh, after the first few uh, weeks that we settled in, he did install cameras in his house <laughs> just for the fear of, oh my God, you know, I'm being neighbors with African uh, family. And five children. And so five children. Wow. Yeah. So uh, Sarah was a baby. She was born here. Um, and, you know, it, it was really a rocky start to the community and also because I, we had no idea about the culture, you know, the, the Western culture. You know, in hindsight, I now know that culture is a currency. Yes. And when your currency is inflated and then you cannot buy anything <laughs> in, in, in that setting. So it must have been lonely. Yes. In the beginning, it was really very lonely. But I think for me, uh, more than the loneliness, I think I hit a place of, I, I call my, I feel that I, ha- I went through phases in this journey. And so I did go into a phase of victimhood. I started with a phase of victimhood, which I felt really powerless to begin with. Because my husband did not speak a word of English. He had to start school. And the children had to go to school. And it was me, the mother, who had to transition the whole uh, family and the community, uh, bring them together. And I had no idea how to do that. And it sounds exhausting. It was really exhausting and, and really hard to cope with to begin with. And I think hence that journey of, of victimhood and feeling that powerlessness of not having um, the communal, um, you know, and support. the family support that yeah. I was used to. Mm. And so it was really hard. And... You know, I think it was also I just had a baby. So I think I might have had a postnatal depression as well 
Well, it wasn't quite really possibly. Po- quite possibly. I was very sad in in, in those days and yeah, so what it, kept you that's how <laughs> what sustained you? I think I might have stayed there longer if these responsibilities weren't put on me. So having five children isn't an easy task and learning how to drive. I was a 30-year-old woman who had never driven in her life and so that was another, you know, work that I needed to get <laughs> to know and to learn and so I had to do driving lessons and all this. So there was all these responsibilities upon me. And I could not, I did not have the luxury to, um, to, to sit by and feel sorry for yourself. And, so, and feel that sorry for myself. You must have had some funny times learning to drive, I learning to assimilate into this society. <laughs> into the society. Yes, through the journey, I think when I entered, I, I think it was really easier when I entered the, vic- the anger space. Because yes. I called my next phase was an, an anger phase. Uh-huh. So that anger phase was so much better than being a victim. Because <laughs> then you could, you you know, you could blame other people for your problems. Yeah. And yeah, and I think what really uh, worked for me is I kept a journal through this journey. And so I was always writing about my experiences or my day. So there so was not a day that went by that I didn't write about my experiences. Very healing. Yeah, very healing. And I think if I had not, that was a really God-sent idea that I had to keep that journal. I never kept a journal before that. Mm. I had no idea where it came from. But I felt that it helped me to write about my, you know, my day and how I was going and, you know, what was happening around me. And I'm also a very curious person. And so I was... You know, I loved the contrasting experiences. Like I would be looking at my experience right now and then I would be looking at this the same if I had this experience back home and how it looked like. So I was always looking at the two experiences and looking at the differences between them. Mm. Yeah. At what stage did you set up your garden? Um, before I set my car, I set the garden. I think one of the things that I never forget was the fact that it was this winter morning and I was really feeling that how am I going to brave the day today? Mm. Winter mornings in Melbourne winter can mornings be very tough. Very tough. And we had this one only heater mm. in the house and I was standing behind that heater. The kids hadn't woken up yet. It was about, I think, 6.30 a.m. And then I look outside and we have this big window and I look outside and I see this woman in Lycra she was pushing a pram with one hand, held a leash of a dog with the other hand, and she had perfect makeup in, on her face. Ah. I'm looking at her and thinking, wow, how does she do <laughs> that? How does she do that? How does she do that? And so somehow I feel that that woman sent a permission slip through. Oh, I wish we yeah, could find her and say yes, thank you. Yes, going, you know what, if I can do it, so can you. And what she really did was also remind me of the resilience of women. Mm. She reminded me of the woman, the Giriyama woman that I grew among. And this is the native Giriyamas are the Kenyan uh, native people in the coastal parts of Kenya. And this woman owned a small shamba. We call it a shamba, but it's a plot of land yeah. where she cultivated her, you know, with you know, with veggies and, and things like that. And so she would harvest her you know, she would make a harvest like three in the morning in a mm. big basket, yep. put that basket on her head 
and put her child in her back, tie her child in the back and walk sometimes a marathon or half a marathon to sell her produce. To the market. To the market. Wow. And, and they all did that. They almost all did mm. that. And they were called Mamamboga. And Mamamboga literally translates in loosely in Swahili, the nurturer of the village. Ah. She was the woman who nurtured the village. And so I remembered that woman. And my resilience literally kicked in. So we went S- from Lycra. From Lycra. <laughs> to the to that woman. To um, the yeah, basket on to the head. The basket on the head. Wow, imagine, that's an amazing yeah. association. Imagine the balance of, you know, yeah. putting your hair in. <laughs> and sometimes they crocheted along the way. They would be cr- doing, you know. So that was an eye-opener for me. And that's what I was telling you before. Like those contrasting experiences mm-hmm. helped me mm. to shape my identity, but to also feel like, oh, the journey of women. And so that is what gave me my next leap into that faith of I can do this. And so I went out there and really what made me... Um, want to be part of the Brighton community or to really understand this community happened when my four-year-old daughter, um, Sarah, who was born in the heart of the community, reached kinder. Mm. And we looked for kinder for her in, you know, um, around the area. And nothing bad was really said, but we received a very frosty reception. Oh, dear. You know, and when we came out, you know, my four-year-old asked me a question that literally changed the trajectory of our lives. She said, Mom, did they not want me because I'm black? Oh, and that's heartbreaking. Yeah, very heartbreaking. I oh. get emotional to this day yeah. when, when yeah. I remember that. So the penny dropped for me then. And I felt that, well, we were, you know, smeared with our fears. Yeah. And we needed to do something. And I think that's when what my husband and I literally made a decision to make Brighton our home. So you didn't and run? We didn't run. And we decided that this was it. This was home mm-hmm. from now onwards. Because I know that most often we have two, you know, um, two minds in, in, in two places. Like, oh, one day we will go back home. And it never works it never no. works because you miss out on your presence, on your present moment and time. So I think it was, um, although that was really hard to take in, I think sometimes when we are in adversity or in spaces of hardship, we do need that slap on the face to wake us up. Yep. And, you know, smell the coffee or understand that, well, this is, this this is, is the, the next reality. Step. This yep. is the next step. Yep. So that did, did that yeah. for us. And yeah. So just describe for our listeners who haven't visited your beautiful sanctuary, what is going on in your garden and, and what parts of it did uh, Igniting Change help to uh, set up? Yeah, so when I, as I said before, I was just f- formulating the idea in my head when I met Jane. And when um, Jane came on board, I took her into my backyard. It was literally empty. There was nothing there. And I said, well, Jane, this is somewhere that I want to bring women together. My intention is to create a healing garden, a space where 
where women can come in circles. There is a lot of healing that women need. Mm. And the, I had the name at the time and, it, and I received this name actually in a dream and it just said raw. I had no idea what raw meant, R-A-W. So I woke up three in the morning and I just wrote down R-A-W and went back to sleep. In the morning, it translated for me, resilient, aspiring women. And a few months into the journey, I realized that if you, you know, uh, when you read raw backwards, it's war. Mm. So it literally translates into my life's journey. There's when that contrast stop, again. Yes, there's that yeah. contrast again. So when you stop the war inside, you can tap into your resilience and aspirations. And that's what I did when I stopped, you know, the head space that tells us, you know, you don't belong here. This mm. is not, you know, the, your identity isn't here. You know, this is not your community. This, when I stopped that, literally doors started opening for me mm. and that is the you know the message that I had for women to inspire them to really connect with themselves and to let go of that war so what happens in the garden at the moment is Jane came on board and she worked with us um, to to start with the gardens igniting change have supported us and built a kitchen a full kitchen because um, you do Brighton like to cook style kitchen <laughs> but you were <laughs> With, an amazing cook yes I did um, before my garden I had a cooking business called cook with Mariam so I went back to Brighteners and I was teaching them about you know I said well there is a wealth in other nations and that you need to understand that different story of Africa because I was so appalled by the media and the portrayal of Africa. And I realized that when you tell a story about someone and you tell it again and again, they become the story. And Bec it's still happening. And it's still happening. Mm. So I one morning when I was, I was telling my children to finish their breakfast because there were children starving in Africa. And <laughs> in all honesty, I never saw starvation. I grew up in a tropical country, tropical land, where in the morning we ate breakfast for, you know, mangoes and guavas mm. and all these exotic fruits mm. that some people never even knew. So I realized that I had become the story. And that's when I <laughs> You were really saying the same things. Yeah, I was saying the same <laughs> things. And that is when I took you know another phase where i felt that i needed to tell the story of africa or this my story in a different context and that's how i became a storyteller and um and used the platforms that i these days go to and tell the stories not only my story although i do tell and that's the only one that i'm ex an expert for but i remind myself that this is not just my story it's the story of the women who never had platforms like this and I'm always nervous to tell those stories because I am afraid to misrepresent them. Yes. Because their stories are needed to come alive. And do you think that there was a, a reason why you are the person who tells the stories now? Do you feel that you were almost chosen to do that? Yes, I feel like I'm a conduit to bring those stories to these platforms so that those women, they could have their stories heard. And what sort of reception do you get from, I guess, the most important ones would be young women? Phenomenal. I love young energy because I think, you know, with young people, they are open to ideas. It's so hard to convince older people. And uh, when you talk with young people, um, I think it's so amazing. One, they're very curious. Second, they are 
open to the ideas and it's so easy to connect with them. And so I work with um, different kinds of, you know, um, um, women. And I believe in, you know, um, multiculturalism. I believe that diversity really makes us whole and it gives us so much. Just within my life, I have got so much out of, you know, being connecting with all uh, different uh, people. Like we just had, um, just a few days ago, we had um, International Women's Day. We celebrated International Women's Day in the garden in storytelling. Mm. And we had about, you know, eight to seven different nationalities just present, a circle of women, yeah. everyone telling their stories. What's your average week look like now? How, how's your time divided up? I work for the raw garden on Tuesdays. I'm always in the garden. So when I am in the garden, I meet with a lot of different people. I meet with um, academics who are doing their papers and things like that. So you'll just say, research. come over on yes, Tuesday. Yes, I tell them, come over on Tuesdays. Mm. So I, I do that. And there's the local community might just drop in. Just yesterday, we had a local Brightoner who brought in her friends from, from France. She had right. to two friends who had visited a husband and his wife and they came all the way you know from France and they were just you know spending they spent the, the afternoon with us fantastic it was in, amazing it was incredible the stories they told us were just phenomenal oh that's fantastic so, yeah and then you're doing some and then speaking. I do speaking yeah I do speaking I'm invited to conferences like I go to conferences uh, interstate um, also in schools and I have another you know I support another organization um, which igniting change has come on board as well which is space to be and we've created a community of uh, designers and artists in St Kilda. Oh, so that's a retail we have, space? It is a retail space. Mm. It is a gallery and it's also a cafe. And okay. yeah, so it's more now than just working with asylum seekers and refugees. It's about creating community and bringing people together. And igniting change is part of, the, of that community. And it's what, you know, the support that we get we get from um, from igniting change is just incredible and amazing, and I love what I love best about it is the trust. You know that ability that Jane has to trust us. You know to do what we can and to to give us that full autonomy hmm. in in doing the work that I do because I don't have to sign papers. I don't have to go after, you know. You don't have to fill in a grant form. I don't have to fill in a grant form. And and most of the time, Jane would bring, like she comes to the garden with uh, some of the women who support the garden, men or women who support the garden. And we have a lunch and just, it's like that big extended family, which is really incredible. It is, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. What are Mariam's dreams now? Well... You know, last year, international. I take International Women's Day very seriously these days because we really need to empower women and women have to step into their power. And so last year, it was uh, Be Bold for Change. And in that, I made a resolution which was to inspire one million women uh, to reach their fullest potential globally. And this year, I'm pressing for that as a progress. 
I want that to happen and to see it, you know, um, happening. So I am branding uh, my work, Mariam Issa. And yeah, so my goal and my big why is to really um, connect with women. To reach one million women. Fantastic. Yes, to unlock that potential, the gem that is within them. I've no yeah. doubt that you'll cool. succeed. Thank you. Um, and finally, what's the what's the one thing you've learned through igniting change? The one thing that I learned igni- uh, through igniting change is they see the person and not the level. That is so true about igniting change, because they connect with you as a person, and they literally see your potential even before you see it yourself. And it's incredible when someone else, you know, has that power to see who you are and to support you along the way with no judgment. I just am incredibly indebted in that. So I, I am now part of, of the Igniting um, Change family. Yes, and very yeah, much I, so. We are very much so. And I just love, love what, what we do, oh. which is incredible. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.